Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to the MMA Fan Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you... Stu and Blake. Hello and welcome to the MMA Fan Podcast. We have an incredibly special episode for you today. Not only are we in person, I can see Stu's lovely face. It's not over Zoom. But also, we are live with an amazing guest. This guy is an icon of the sport. The UFC would not be the same without him. And in a roundabout way, this episode is sponsored by him because it's sponsored by It's Time and I can't say it as well as him. <laughs> it's Bruce Buffer. Your cologne is there. You're sat in front of us. Bruce Buffer, how are you doing? Thank you, Blake. Thank you, Stu. I'm fine. I really enjoy being in England. I always love when I'm here. And uh, let's have a good time. Let's do this. Absolutely. Let's have a it's time, good time. <laughs> <laughs> always hustling. Love it. Love it. ABC, always be selling, always be closing. It's all good. <laughs> <laughs> Bruce, we always start the podcast by asking guests about where they grew up and how that was. So tell uh-huh. us a little bit about where you grew up. Well, according to my father, I was conceived in Las Vegas. And then I was... <laughs> very specific. Very specific. <laughs> I was dropped off in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, where I lived for nine months and moved to Dallas, Texas, which uh, was great to have Southwestern upbringing. And then we moved to Philadelphia, where my mom, my brother, all my relatives are, which basically is my hometown, Philadelphia, mm-hmm. Pennsylvania. So I grew up there, um, went back to Dallas for a couple of years, back to Philly, mm-hmm. and then... With predominantly all my years in Philadelphia, I moved to Malibu with my family when I was 15. So that was kind of culture shock, okay, going yeah. from Philadelphia to Malibu, California, um, seeing all the blonde Pamela Anderson types running out of the water and the ocean and the ocean. And I, all I wanted to do was learn how to surf and enjoy the lifestyle, and I, I uh, became Baywatch before Baywatch happened. Yeah. I was a surfer, and uh, all I did was study martial arts, train, fight, surf, go to school, and... It was a great upbringing. As a matter of fact, um, we were middle class. We weren't rich. Uh, back in 1972, to be in Malibu was more of a coastal community area. All the rich people, all the actors lived at the beach. And one of the most uh, memorable experiences I had that the uh, famous actor Steve McQueen yes. uh, was one of my good friends for the last six years of his life. I spent wow. almost every day at his beach house. His son's still one of my best friends and had a lot of fun with him, a lot of experiences with him. And it, it, was, a great, it was a great way to grow up. It really was. Well, you, you mentioned training martial arts there. You also mentioned, that obviously, you moved around a lot as a kid. Was that 
something that was was moving around something that was was difficult was it something that you had to be uh able to deal with confrontation is that where the martial arts came from how, how, where did, yeah. how did all that happen well basically um it's funny you ask that question because um as a kid in texas there were some altercations you know back then even as a young kid uh, the gym teacher could never happen today when you had an altercation, they gave you a pair of boxing gloves and went after school and we got to have a little fun. No. Yeah, you could never do that today, right? And then in Philadelphia, um, when I got in one of my first real street fights, the only one I ever lost, and I said, I'm never going to lose another street fight, and I started studying judo. And I got a green belt in judo. My dad was a hand-to-hand combat instructor in the Marines, drill instructor, served in World War II in Korea. His voice was amazing. My brother Michael and I say he has the best set of pipes of all of us. And um, he taught me how to handle myself when I was very young. He said I was going to have altercations when I went to school, and he prepared me for a lot of stuff. But when I, when I got in this uh, pretty heavy brawl at a young age, I said, you know what? I, I handled myself, but I didn't handle myself right, so I want to start training. And then I, I did the judo, and uh, then when I moved to Malibu, I met Chuck Norris's fighting partners, and I started studying the art of Tonksudo, which was his style he learned in the Air Force in Korea. And I got a second-degree black belt in that, um, and I, I fought in some tournaments and stuff and had a number of altercations, as we all had as, as kids and everything. Uh, and then I wanted to study fighting for real. I wanted to fight for real. So I got into kickboxing because if I was going to go at it, I just didn't want to point fight, all respect to, you know, eat mm-hmm. done. Yeah. I wanted to get in and just, like, battle it out, either get yeah. knocked out or knock the other guy out. And I got heavily into kickboxing for 10 or 12 years. And then when I was around 30, 32, um, I wanted to have one professional fight, and I studied and excuse me, studied, trained the whole bit, getting ready for the fight. I was concussed twice during training, and the doctor had me stop. Oh, so, man. but I, I still kept training. And and with that fighting and and that background in it, do you think it, that's given you a real sort of insight into the sort of psychological aspects of, of fighting, and and to enable you to know you know much clearer insights to what you do now? Absolutely, but uh, again, with my father out of the womb, we were watching boxing. You know, that was our big thing boxing the whole bit he was training me we were watching boxing i i'm so i was so engulfed in the world of fighting from a young age but i also spent a lot of time with fighters you know and i learned the mentality of the fighters and even before i ever stepped into the octagon in the ufc you know even working in the world of boxing when i was managing my brother's career which i still do the legendary you know michael buffer um i just been surrounded by fighters i have a fighter mentality and and i respect fighters and uh, it's just something that I've always been in tune with. So when the UFC came on the scene because of my martial arts background and a lot of the experiences that I had, I knew that was my world and I knew I had to get into it someday. But at first, being my brother's manager, I my job was to put Michael in every major event that happened. And the UFC, when it came along, was the top 10 fastest growing pay-per-view in America. It was a spectacle. It wasn't a sport. It's grown into a mainstream sport. And I got Michael in to do UFC um, Six, seven, and ultimate, ultimate. And what happened was they had him walk in the octagon at, at UFC 6 in, in um, Casper, Wyoming. And they had him say, if it's not in the octagon, it's not real, right? Well, he was doing WCW wrestling back then with Hulk Hogan yeah. and Sting and all the guys. And back then before the lawsuit, not lawsuit, but the, the law case in uh, Connecticut uh, had the wrestling world say sports entertainment. They wanted you to think that it was completely real. Yes. Now, it is to a large extent. I have tremendous respect for the wrestling world. Yep. These wrestlers, men and women, doing 50, 100 or more shows a year, what they put themselves through, it's, 
it, it's fantastic what they do. It's not real fighting, but all the respect. They are really putting their bodies on the line. So I have a lot of respect for them. But then when the, when he said if it's not in the octagon, it's not real, the WCW got a little upset that I put him in the UFC. And after a conversation and realizing the kind of money he was making in WCW, and he couldn't grow with the UFC at the pace it was going, obviously back to the WCW in the boxing world. And that gave me my opening to do what I needed to do and take that shot to become the octagon announcer, which took me like a year and a half. Well, we, we want to get into that, obviously, but... You've kind of skipped over what is, I think, such a truly fascinating and kind of serendipitous story there of of you meeting your brother, as you say, the legendary Michael Buffer, the guy that gave us Let's Get Ready to Rumble. Right. You, as far as I'm aware, and obviously correct me if I'm wrong, you weren't aware that you were a brother of, of, of Michael's. You were watching the TV one day. He comes on and you're like, oh, he's got the same last name. And your dad tells you, oh, I... I think that's your brother. I'm Can you tell us that whole story? I haven't heard that in so long. <laughs> well, you know, I, I read a thesaurus I just love before it, I coming love it, in. Love you know. Yeah, long story cut short. Um, Don't Mike, cut it short. We want the detail. <laughs> okay, we want the details. Okay. Michael and I did not grow up together. I never knew Michael existed. I had no idea. My dad and my mom never told me that, you know, my dad had a son. And what happened is when my dad, before he ever met my mother, he was 20 years old, he... Um, began his service in World War II over in the Pacific for nine months. But before he left, he had met a woman and they got married and a son was born while he was overseas. When he got back, a divorce ensued. And uh, he, for whatever reason, was in contact. But the last time he saw his son was when he was two and a half years old, right? So now growing up, married to my mother, everything that happened, uh, we're watching boxing in the late 80s. Out comes this gentleman Debonair, James Bond looks, you know, the classiest ring announcer in the history of the sport, uh, becoming as popular, more popular than the boxers. And, and it goes on the screen, Michael Buffer. Now, we watch boxing religiously every week. And all of a sudden, I'm looking at the screen, I see Michael Buffer. And I'm like, what? Buffer? I own telemarketing companies in my 20s. I had my first corporation when I was uh, 19. I never stopped. I always worked for myself. I had my own companies. And um, I saw every phone book in the United States. And as a natural thing, this is before the internet when you can just go on the internet and Google it. But as a natural thing, I looked at every phone book and the white pages for my last name. Never saw my name buffer anywhere, every, anywhere at all. So here on the screen comes out this gentleman. And I'm not saying we look alike because he's so darn pretty. It's like, you know, his, you're pretty as well. Oh, you're a pretty you. man. I appreciate so, myself. Uh, I got yeah. stars, though, but that's okay. <laughs> um, but thank you very much. This interview is going great. <laughs> um, I thought to myself, well, something's going on here. And I didn't say anything to my dad, but I started calling the offices of Bob Arum and Don King and trying to research where this gentleman was from. And it turned out that he grew up miles away from where I grew up in Philadelphia. And then it started getting even more familiar. And then people are coming up to me in the street when he gets so popular and say, hey, is, is that your brother, the guy that goes, let's get ready to rumble? I go, no, my brother's Brian, the gentleman I grew up with my whole life. And um, I'm driving along with my dad up north to San Francisco one day. And this is about six months in. And I said, dad, I... Everybody's coming up to me. You know, we watch this guy on TV. I've asked you kind of before, any idea? But I'm going to ask you again, do you have any idea who this guy is? And I get this. I think that's your brother. What are you talking about? I'm like 28 years old. Like, what you, my brother, what do you mean? And then he explained to me that he was married and the son was born and he wasn't sure. So Michael was doing a show in Los Angeles and at the Reseda Country Club, which was a very small venue, popular for boxing events. And when we were watching on TV, my brother Brian and I pushed him to say, Dad, why don't you call 
leave a message and see if we'll call you back. So he did. And Michael called him back. And they met for lunch. And it turned out to be his son. And then we all got together two weeks later for dinner, and I'll never forget it. I'm a big fan of this this gentleman walking in, and he's my blood walking in. It's like, wow. This, I can't even explain the feeling. Yeah. It's definitely, definitely different. So then from that point on, in my businesses that I had, I would travel the country, um, and I'd stop off in Vegas. We'd go to the fights together, spend time together, party together, club together, bond as brothers together. And I was at a fight, uh, I think it was November 13 or 16th, 1992. It was Evander Holyfield, Riddick Bowe won the very first time they were boxed. And I'm watching in the audience at the Thomas Mack uh, Arena, and everybody's going crazy when he goes into the Rumble. You know, Hulk Hogan's jumping up, Jack Nicholson's going nuts, the whole crowd's going nuts, I'm going nuts. And I had an epiphany, right? Sort of a serendipitous epiphany. <laughs> and uh, I went back to my room, and unlike what you normally do in Vegas, you know, play blackjack, go out, party, you know, say hi to girls, whatever you do in Vegas. I went back to my room, and I, and I just couldn't stop. I started writing notes, like three pages of notes, you know, put them in the football field, uh, movies, TV, video games, trademark this phrase, do this, do that, do this, do that. And it just kept going and going and going. And I, I was making fantastic money. And I had two companies, but I was burned out. I was very burned out on what I was doing. I'd, I'd reached my level. And uh, I kept thinking and thinking and thinking. And then I read an article about Pat Riley, the uh, coach of the Chicago Bulls, when they won the championship three times in a row. And he trademarked the phrase three-peat, right? And how he had made a million and a half dollars off the uh, licensing and trademark. Trademark and the licensing uh, revenue from that. So I started thinking even more, and I'm thinking, wow, trademark this phrase, put it on the tip of everybody's tongue. Uh, again, movies, TV shows, video games, all this. And I, I met with my brother, and I said, Michael, you know, I have this idea. I want to sell both my companies. I'm going to quit with the money I have in the bank and roll the dice. I want to become your manager and your partner, and I want to direct your career. I'm going to put you in every major event uh, in the world. I'm going to... Uh, trademark this phrase properly. We're going to make products and toys and movies and TV and all the stuff I have planned. And he looked at me, well, how, how are you going to do all that? And I said, I really don't know. But if I'm going to give all this up, you know, I had, I had, a, I was, I had a beach house, beautiful beach house. I'm living the life of two and a half men, my, minus the alcoholism, <laughs> right? I'm just, I'm loving life. I'm enjoying everything. But again, I was burned out of my work. My passion started to, to tingle and, and explode with the thought of, of, going on this venture with my brother. And I had to do it. I just had to roll the dice. And I said, I don't know, but I'll, I'll figure it out. I'll make it happen. And that was about 30 years ago. And, and it's gone okay since. It's gone okay. It's gone okay. <laughs> it's, gone okay. <laughs> it's fine. Just to go back to, to, to when you first um, met your brother and, and you sort of, them, them first sort of months of, of hanging out together, mm -hmm. was there a, a natural connection there? Yeah, you know, you would wonder, considering we didn't grow up and the separation, what would it be like? But it was very smooth. Yeah. Michael's a very cool cat and uh, very easy to get along with. We're different. Obviously, we didn't grow up together. We're similar in other ways. Um, but, yeah, the synergy was there. Yeah. And that's where the synergy was there that, that I could comfortably think about the fact that I could be his partner, that I could be his manager and, and make this happen. Yeah. Yeah. And with the management, like, how quickly did that? Because you're saying that you had the corporations at such a young age. You clearly had drive uh, and ambition. How quickly you know, working as, 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 as your brother's manager, did that come to fruition and things started to really sort of scale? I was dibble-dabbling in it a little bit um, before I came to him with it. Um, 
but I'm, I've trained thousands of people how to sell. I was telemarketing. I trained people how to sell. I'm very tenacious. Uh, even as a telemarketer, I could cover more ground and do more business in one day than most people do in a week. You know, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I, when I went to work in that industry, I became the top salesman within a week. I became the sales manager within two months. I said I wanted to own a company. I, I did that. You know, I, I, when I when I'm set my goals and I go after them, I make them happen, right? It's just the nature of the beast that I am. So I knew that this would take place. It's just a matter of time. Yeah. But I had to, I had to do the the uh, the ground and down ground and pound dirty work. You know, I would um, go to Kinkos, which is a copy place in America. I don't know if they yes. had it here. No. So it cost me about fifteen dollars for little promo packs, like eight by ten promo packs. I would make with this picture on them and articles from newspapers and other things I would put in. And I'd, I'd hand pack these things. I had no assistant. I had no partner like I have today that works my business with me. And um, I would go to these uh, conventions around the country where they were toy conventions or uh, sports conventions or whatever with, with a bag with all these promo kits, walk around and just see what, what would fit. Where would he fit? Where would, where would Let's Get Ready to Rumble? Where would Michael's image fit to enhance their product or their venture? And I would pitch people incessantly, you know, shake hands, take names. I go to boxing events. Um, I would even announce, announce undercards of, on boxing fights with them. But my whole goal there was to, to network, you know, take numbers, take down names, follow up on them. Yeah. You know, before, when fax machines were around, I would stay up till 3 in the morning sending out, you know, 300 faxes a night uh, of what was happening in Michael Buffer's life and why people needed him. And yeah. maybe it was a little too much for some people, but you know what? That's what it takes. Yeah. you got to get out there and you got to make it happen. What you're talking about, this kind of, this drive and the ability to, people would pay good money for that. I, can, I mean, this isn't a question. This is just me saying, I think TED Talks on just like, <laughs> do, 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 I don't know, like life goals, because that's a big thing now, isn't it? The kind of like life coaching, goal oriented this. That. I kind of feel like people would pay you good money, Bruce, just to hear you talk for a little bit and, you know, get some kind of life experience and uh, be able to pursue their goals with the Bruce Buffer steps to achieving your dreams. <laughs> well, I haven't sent you my invoice yet, but it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, in, in all reality, though, one of the, one of the regrets I have in my life is that I was invited to do a TED Talk in Chicago many years ago, but my schedule did not allow for it. But I love doing motivational speaking. I love teaching branding and marketing, and I've done numerous, many, many speaking engagements uh, on the same card as, you know, President Bush and other people and chat, you know, I can go on and on and on where I come out and do my 45 minutes to motivate people. And, and uh, I like motivating people. I like getting people excited about them, believing in themselves, setting their goals, making it happen. When you do a motivational speech, if you can excite somebody for two minutes, two days, two years or two months, you've done your job. It's up to them to take it and work with it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So I very much enjoy that. Um, because I have a three-foot theory in my life. I like everybody around me to be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. You know, excuse me, prosperous, healthy, and happy, okay? I like to give out to people what I like to receive back. So I'm a very positive person, and I love just doing what I can to, you know, benefit the people around me. As I say in my podcast, you know, be a role model to your sphere of influence. We live in a decaying society of morality, right? It's not the same as it used to be. Mm -hmm. So it's up to people to stand up and, and stay strong and you know, let's not let this world go to hell in a handbasket. Let's keep it going. Absolutely. Absolutely. And in terms of the the iconic nature of your voice, of Michael's voice mm -hmm. being, you know, these most recognisable voices in combat sports to, oh, to a lot you. of people. Thank you. 
just makes me think, is it genetic? Is it like, do you have to be a buffer? <laughs> like, the rest of us got no chance. You have to be a buffer, otherwise no, it's not going to work. Listen, everybody's replaceable, right? Nobody's irreplaceable. They might not be the same. They might not go, you know, crazy in the octagon like I do or whatever. But, I mean, there's going to come a time when I'm not going to be in the octagon anymore. Um, you just leave your mark. You leave your mark in life. But uh, to be a buffer, uh, our, like I said, our dad had the best set of pipes of all of us, for sure. But I think everybody, everybody realizes their abilities, focuses on their goals, then they can achieve what they're going after. I might just change my name. Don't wait for things to happen. Make them happen, okay? I might just change my name to Blake Buffer and just see if things can work for me. (laughs) Actually, it's funny. I was in Minnesota one time, and this hotel employee walked out with a name Buffer on his his jacket. He goes, I've been waiting so long to meet you. I said, love to meet you, but excuse me, I have met enough family members, no more. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't even want to hear the pitch. Oh, wow. And... Bruce, from, from managing your brother and, and, and obviously uh, your brother having such an established career at this point, how did you then move into the UFC? Well, when I had to remove Michael, not remove, excuse me, when I cannot continue Michael's uh, three-fight agreement I had with the UFC, I, I called up the owner then, Robert Meyerowitz, and um, I would fly to his offices in New York, take them out for drinks, do the pitch, the whole bit, say, look, you need a buffer in the octagon, okay? A lot of people are scared of your event, and they were back then. Mm-hmm. Right, even ESPN back then, I would pitch them on the Ultimate Fighting Championship. They were scared of the name back then, and I could probably go through old emails to even prove that. But I'm telling you right now, it was the mm-hmm. case. And what if they paid billions of dollars now, um, smartly so, to be the ones to televise it? But back then, it was a spectacle, right? And I had a lot of media contacts, um, and so I said, "Look, I you need a buffer in the octagon. I need to grow with you as the announcer. I will not just be the announcer." I will help you build this brand. I'm a brand builder. I will help you build this brand. I will do everything I can to bring eyeballs to the sport and do my part way beyond the pool of an announcer. I don't need to be paid for any of that. Let's just talk about pay for being the announcer. But I'm going to be much more than just an announcer for you. Well, it kind of fell on deaf ears, right? Or it did fall on deaf ears. So then I got a videotape from a a fighter in Minnesota named Scott the Pitbull Ferrazzo. And 6'1", 340 pounds, hands down, down to his ankles, you know, the perfect kind of guy they wanted back then, the Tank Abbott type. And they said, okay, we want him to fight and buy him on Puerto Rico, February 16th, 1996, right? So as his manager, and I didn't want to be a manager of fighters, but I agreed to be his manager for the one fight, and I had a reason behind it. I always have a reason for what I do. And we, I went down with him as his manager to buy him on Puerto Rico, and I called up the owner. I said, listen, Robert... I'm coming down with my fighter. I've got a tuxedo in my bag. Let me announce the prelims, show you what I got. You need me in the octagon. Well, he agreed to let me announce the prelims. And I did. My fighter won. And then uh, uh, I forget if he won a lot. Oh, it was a tournament. He won and then he lost. Uh, So I called them up afterwards and they didn't hire me, right? That was it. I had my little shot. Five months later, give or take, I'm in the hospital with my mother's had a serious operation. I'm in the room. She's recovering the next day. My phone rings. It's the UFC. They're calling me up, say, listen, uh, the announcer's uncle passed away. He has to go to a funeral. We need you in Dalton, Alabama in two days. You're going to announce the entire show. I said, I got to call you back. I'm, I'm in the hospital with my mom. I'm dealing with something very serious. My mother's everything to me. Family's everything to me. And so I hung up the phone, and she's in, she's in the bed, and she heard me. And it was like something out of Rocky. You know, when Talia Shire's, um, you know, in a coma and Rocky won't train and he's waiting for her to wake up and he can't fight because his yeah. wife's in the bed, right? So she looks up to me. She goes, 
that's the call you've been waiting for, right? I said, yes, Mom, it is. She goes, go. She puts her thumb up. She goes, go. you got to go. All of a sudden, I start hearing, dun, 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 and I go up my head. You know, it was like a montage shot. Yeah, montage shot happening, right? And so I got her blessing. I went down. I did the show. I thought I did a good job. I come back. They wind up hiring somebody else. The producer hired a friend of his. I think his name was Manny Garcia or something. Good voice, a little nervous. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The service said a couple names wrong, gave me enough fodder to call them up and say, hey guys, come on, let's get real here. I want to be the, the announcer, right? Flew to New York again. Um, did what I do, knock on doors, always ask for the job, guys. If you want something, you got to ask for it. Don't wait for it to happen. So the deaf ears happen. Then about another five or six months later, I get a call, and I could be off my timing a little bit, and they're doing a TV show called Friends, which is in the second season, but it's the biggest comedy on TV. Yeah. And they're doing a show called The Ultimate Fighting Champion and uh, with John Favreau and Tank Abbott and Big John McCarthy. And they said, listen, we're going to do a voiceover in the show, but Warner Brothers wants a real announcer, so uh, would you like to co-star in Friends? I said, let me think for about a millionth of a second. Of course. Yeah. Right? Well, Warner Bros. is going to send a runner down, pick up uh, audio and, and uh, tape and pictures, whatever. So they send a runner down, they, and then Warner Brothers calls me at 6 o'clock that night on a Monday and said, listen, you're hired. Be on the set at 6 in the morning tomorrow. Rehearse all day. Film on Wednesday. Great. You know? Did it. I called the owner up. I said, listen, I'm going to be on the set. You're here. Let's talk. i got to meet you for lunch. So I met him at lunch, and I said, look, Robert, here I am. I'm co-starring on the biggest show on TV as myself, as the Octagon announcer, the biggest PR move you guys have ever had. Let's stop screwing around. I feel like a girl waiting to be asked to the prong. I'm going to ask you one more time. I want to be the Octagon announcer. I want to grow with the sport. I want to perfect my tool. And I want to help you build this brand with everything I can bring to the table. Go team. Let's do this. Best poker. I'm a big poker player. Hand. Best poker hand I ever played in my life. Got hired. And from UFC 13 on, did every single show. You know, you name it, I did it. So I remember that friends. Worked for the short long. money, stayed yeah. in the Roach Coach motels, whatever. I mean, I was making, I, I was fine, yep. right? But I paid my dues and did what I had to do. That's amazing. And I mean, the thing that's really come out now was the iconic thing. It's the name of the cologne that sat here with us is, yeah. is it's time. And did you always know that was going to catch on? 
Was it? Did, did you ever think, oh, I might have to change it? Was that always the, the slogan and did, did you know it was going to work? Well, first off, I was never phrase-driven because back when I started as an announcer, all the announcers coming into the fighting sports wanted to be Michael Buffer, right? And Michael had his famous trademark, which I trademarked, mm-hmm. you know, properly for him. And I'm, I'm the man behind the man behind the rumble. I'm his manager. I'm, you know, running that whole empire. And I thought, you know what? It's not what I say. It's how I say it. So I did not come out and start a catchphrase. I never started with a catchphrase. It was about seven years in. And every morning when I wake up, I look in the mirror, you know, after I'm shaving and I would slap my face and go, it's time. Meaning it's time to have the best day I can. It's time to be the best I can be. I've always said this to myself. And at the beginning of the show, I would start off with saying, it's time to begin the ultimate fighting championship. Well, when Dana bought the company, they flew me into Vegas for the Godfather meeting with Dana, right? So now I'm one-on-one with Dana. I knew Dana from before. He was managing Chuck Liddell and and, uh, Tito Ortiz. And, you know, he definitely paid his dues before he became the amazing iconic maverick businessman that he is, which is the reason that we're all here today um, to a very large extent. Thank you, Dana. Uh, and he said, you know, there's two announcements I love. One was by your brother and the other, uh, which strangely enough was the Riddick Bo Holyfield one fight. He thought that was the greatest announcement he ever heard by my brother, which was the night I had the epiphany. And then was when I announced Evan Tanner and Tito Ortiz in Atlantic City. And he said, I would like you to, uh, stop saying that it's time to begin the ultimate fighting championship at the beginning. Grab that kind of energy you had in that fight and apply that. That's what I would love to see, which was fine with me because I don't stand still when I announce. I got to move. I got to throw all my passion, my energy in what I do. I never know what I do, how I'm going to do it, whether I'm going to jump 360, do whatever. I just, I've got to, I'm like a kid in a candy store. I'm having fun. So um, I forgot your reason for your question, but uh, that's, that's, that was the point that I realized, okay, I'm going to stay with this tempo and you only get good at things by what we call reps in the business. The more you do them, the better you get to perfect your tool, perfect your muscle, perfect your art, perfect everything. Mm -hmm. So I realized at one point during the main event that the fans have been sitting in the audience for five hours. The fighters have been training for eight to 10 weeks for this point where they come out to do their battle um, for the main event. And I thought, wow, it's time. It is time. This is time. So I started saying it's time and not the way I say it today. And I didn't jump three feet in the air like I, <laughs> like I started doing. You know, All that happened over time, right? But I remember when we went back to Brazil and I think it was 2003, give or take, and I did it's time and the entire uh, Portuguese speaking audience, 15 plus thousand people said it's time with me. Right, And when I get out of the octagon, because I don't listen to the crowd, I'm focused on the fighters, I block everything out, I really don't hear anything. That's why I watch it on TV when I get back, get yeah. a more feel for it. But Stitch Duran, the famous cut man, he said, Buff, did you hear that? I go, what? He goes, everybody said it's time with you. I've never even heard that when your brother says, let's get ready to rumble. It was amazing. Oh, you're kidding. And then it started to catch on, and that's when I realized it was starting to catch on like that, yeah. which gave me even more of a, a, um, a passionate... Uh, motivation to to continue to build it to the way I built it today. Bruce, you just touched on the Brazilian crowd there. Um, we're recording this the day before UFC London, um, and you know you've been in London many times for, for for the UFC and the crowds. You know, for us, I think maybe last year when Paddy walked out for in the O2, yes, I'd crazy. never heard a reaction like it from uh, a crowd in the UK. Yeah, um, where. 
Where in the world do you think you get the most electric crowds? You know, it's, I've been asked this question a couple of times, not that it's not completely original because it is. Um, with all respect to every city and nation that I've been to, every country and city have their, has their own flavor. Yeah. yeah. Right? So, what I, like, you can go to Japan and it's quiet, they're not saying anything. And then somebody hits the ground, it's like, oh, <laughs> oh, right? You go to Brazil and they're just fanatically nuts from the moment I walk out before a fight even happens. They're just going crazy. Now you get to the UK and Ireland, right? 20,000 people sound like 100,000 people. 5,000 sound like 50,000 people. With all respect, I love announcing in the UK. I love announcing at the O2. I love going to England, rather Ireland. Scotland was amazing too. This is the land of fight fans. You love your fights here, right? And the, I mean, you love your soccer. You love your fights. You love your sports. You're extremely passionate people and fans. And it's so much fun to be able to announce and perform to the UK fans. I mean, I'm really looking forward to tomorrow. Yeah. It's really a lot of fun for me. It's always a lot of fun for me. But when I come to the UK, it's a lot of fun for me because I feed off the energy. And the energy tomorrow is going to be fantastic, right? And that's what I really look forward to. So UK fans are just top notch. Absolutely. Little rabid. They can, they, can, <laughs> they, they can definitely, you know, corner me up and, yeah. and uh, crowd me, but it's okay. I mean, that's what it's all about. Especially you after know, a few drinks. <laughs> it's okay. UFC fans are the most amazing, passionate fans. It's funny, out of, out of all the sports, I have to give them a very high credit. And uh, without the fans, we're nothing. When I'm there, the show's not about me. The show's about the fighters, to me. The show's about the fighters and the fans. We're there to perform and give the fans their entertainment. And they're there for the fighters. Yeah. I'm just there to serve. I'm just there to do my thing. And you do a phenomenal job of it. Thank and you. Uh, the reason is probably because you have this amazing voice that I'm assuming you take care of very, very well. Are there warm-ups that go into it? And if there are, yeah. can, you, uh, can you show us a bit of a warm-up or help us get through a quick warm-up? Well, you know what? I never rehearse. You never rehearse? You don't warm up? You don't really? I'll tell you what I do. When I'm doing the cards... And um, phonetically, I'll write on the cards or I want to get the fighters' names down. If, they, if you call that rehearsal, maybe that's the only rehearsal. Yeah, no. Um, but there's a rehearsal voice and there's an organic voice, right? And I want to go out and I want to be real and I want to be organic. And I want to feed off the energy of the crowd. So usually my day starts, I get a good night's sleep before the show. I get a power breakfast in, get a little workout in, stretching, meditation, um, Get, get into what I call my buffer zone, you know, get ready to get in there. Um, get the monkey suit on, you know, get everything ready to go. And then as soon as I walk from the back out to the front and I, I feel that audience and I see the audience, that's when everything gets into me. So then you've probably seen me shows where I'll, I, I don't think anybody's watching, but I've learned from videos that make the internet that people are watching, but I'll stretch and I'll do, you know, <laughs> things at the show. And it might, might look a little funny to some people, but I'm sitting there for seven, eight hours, you yeah. know? It's like I got to loosen up. I want to get in there. I want to be loose. I want to be ready to go. And I've been an athlete my whole life. And, you know, between the martial arts, I can still do full splits and the whole bit. I mean, I want to stay wow. flexible. Yeah. Right? So I can barely touch my looks, toes now. The first UFC <laughs> I ever went to, we, we, we managed to get front row because we were doing some bits and pieces. And the first thing I said to my mate, I went, check out Bruce. And you was doing your stretches and that. I was like, yeah. he's in the zone. Or, I, or I'll get in the octagon, I'll be jumping up and down or whatever. <laughs> I told you earlier, I don't know what, I, I don't know what I'm going to do till I do it, but I've got to do it the way I do it, the way I've been doing it for over 27 years now, because if I change now, it's not going to be the same. Sure. You know? and, and here's the other thing too, guys, is that 
tomorrow night when I walk out there, and and I swear this is exactly how I am, every night is my first night. I have to prove tomorrow night that I deserve this job. I have to prove to myself, prove to Dana White, the powers that be, you, the UFC fans, my mom watching back home. I have to prove that I deserve this job, yeah. right? I'm the most critical person in the world about myself there is. So I don't live in my laurels. You won't hear me talk about how I did a 360 at UFC 100 or I did this, I did that. No, I'm only as good as tomorrow night, right? I did it two weeks ago. That's two weeks ago. Tomorrow night, I got to prove that I deserve this job. And that passion, that's what passionately keeps me going. Yeah. You know, I'm 66 now. I want to yeah. do this till I'm 76 or older. Yeah. As long as I can physically do it, and I've been an athlete my whole life, I'll keep training to make sure that I can do it all. I might, I might go down in the octagon. I might go, it took, right there, boom, I'm done. That'd be a great way to go. <laughs> what? Really? Oh, go. <laughs> <laughs> Put a bit of a dampener on the rest of the evening, Bruce. <laughs> you know? I mean, you, you, you crank it to 11 every time you're in that octagon. And uh, have you ever had a moment where your voice has gone? Like, because you really give it and, you know, vocals have only got so much in it. Have you ever been at an event where you're like, oh, God, the voice is going? I, it's, well, in the early days when I used to pull it from here and then you learn, well, how does a singer do two shows a night, five, seven nights a week? They bring it from here. They bring it from the diaphragm. So I learned how to, to work my tool, right? But I've done the show post-laryngitis. I've done the show with a blown-out back. I've done the show with one leg. I've done the show where I did a uh, lip-sync contest one night for the UFC that I severed my ACL the night before I had three shows in a row, three days in a row, right? I literally severed my ACL where you watch them carry footballers off the field, right? Yeah. So I said, he said, you got to lie in bed for three days, ice and rest. I go, no, I'm not. I got to be in the octagon of three hours. Get me a knee brace, Right. So I went in and I just did a little buffer light. I didn't tell anybody, but I went in and I did it. I'm not fighting, guys. These guys, these men and women are fighting. They're putting their blood, sweat, and tears and lives on the line. I can get through a show and announce. Has my voice ever gone a little bit? Sure, but I can still find enough to pepper yeah. it up and get it going again. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Just through sheer will and determination. Adrenaline. Let it happen. Yeah. Let it, you know, it, it, the show must go on. It's, it's the oldest adage in the world, but it's true. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And you mentioned the fighters, and when you are really going for it a lot of the time you're in that fighter's face you know mm-hmm. you move everything you fist pump them uh, and they, they fist pump me oh, i they have fist never pump me. generated oh, really? i have never this is, <laughs> want, this is for the record everybody okay i have never instigated a fist pump. Right. if they want it they'll get it okay <laughs> it's only fair this is their world and they're saying to me welcome to it okay i respect their zone now when i first started getting in fighters areas right it's wonderful because they respect me enough to let me do that. Otherwise, yeah. they could just go, boop, yeah. right, get the hell out of here, right? So, um, yeah, and, but now they're, they're, they're doing this. They yeah. want to get in or they're bringing their faces yeah. up to me. And it's amazing to have that experience because I'm looking into the eye of the tiger. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when I'm announcing them, I don't take my eyes off their eyes unless they turn or something like that. I'm looking into their soul. I mean, I've seen fear. I've seen every kind of emotion you can possibly imagine, and I'll stay quiet about who, what, where, and when. Yeah. But um, it's an amazing experience that I can't even relate to you what it's like unless you were right beside me or there was a camera on my shoulder. And to have that experience every night that I do a show, for me, can you imagine what, how exciting that is for me at the same time? Yeah. It's unbelievable. Yeah. I'd love a buffer cam in the octagon. <laughs> Let's just get a little GoPro on your head there so we can yeah. see what buffer sees. That would be amazing. Um, 
But like, the, the thing is, these, these fighters don't just respect you. I think they bloody love you, Bruce. They, they, they really do. And we've had, like, Paddy Pimlet and Ian Gary on, on, on our show previously, in, from their Cage Warriors day, but before they even made it into the UFC. And then we've had them on again after the UFC. You know... Paddy Pimblett, Ian Gary, they're two people that don't lack in confidence. They're very confident individuals. Mm-hmm. And even they have spoken about that first debut fight in the UFC. And I think it was Ian that mm. basically said he almost had an out-of-body experience. And he was like, oh, my God, Bruce Buffer is saying my name. Wow. Are, you, are you aware of the effect that you're having on these fighters? Because you're so iconic to the sport now. I know I've said it a couple of times, but it's really true that even these young fighters coming through, as soon as you start saying their name, they're looking you in the eye. They're having a moment of, oh, my God, it's Bruce. I really humbly appreciate all those words. I I don't get cocky, guys. I just, I'm just humble about the whole thing, you know? I told you it's my first night tomorrow night. Yeah. Um, when I hear that or I experience that or the fighter comes up to me afterwards and we have words together or even our exchange in the octagon, these are just memorable moments, lifetime memorable moments for me. And I cherish every single one of them. And to hear a fighter... Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I don't even say that. It's like, really? I'm like, really? I, did, I have that, really? I'm like a little kid, really? Really? <laughs> so I, I, that's just my attitude. I have to keep that, you know? Yeah. I'm just Bruce. Just call me Bruce. I mean, legend, this, that, the other. I appreciate all that. I really, really do. I think you have to die before you're a legend, but it's okay. <laughs> I've used the word icon, not legend. If that oh, makes yeah, you feel okay. any better, into it. I don't want you to die. I don't. We don't you, 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 I, we'll call you legend later. Icon is good. I really appreciate. It. I don't. I don't consider myself better than anybody else. I just want to be the best I can be when I do it. I just want to go out there and just passionately love and enjoy what I do and just give my best performance. And once you've done that performance before a fight. Um, the fight starts. We then, obviously, we see Bruce leave the octagon, go and sit down. What does Buffer do in between when the fights are on? Are you watching the fights or you prep him for the, you know, the... the All the above. Yeah. yeah, I'm watching, prepping. Um, there might be... Uh, I have an IFB in my ear, director notes coming in. Uh, you know, could be a... Got to answer texts or whatever if you see me on my phone. It's not... But I'm always watching the fights. Yeah. My head could be down. It might look like I'm on my phone or writing my cards for the next fight. But believe me... I'm always watching the fights. I see everything going on. And has there been a fighter that you've enjoyed watching live the most? Very difficult question to answer because I've announced every major fighter there is for the yeah. last 27 plus years. There's two questions that are hard for me to answer. What's the greatest fight I've ever seen? Who's the greatest fighter I've ever seen? I can give you examples thereof. Yep. Um, who's the GOAT? I can give you examples thereof. But the moment I think I've seen like the greatest fight in the world, two months later, I'm seeing the greatest fight in the world. Yeah. You know, it's like... The UFC never fails to deliver. We have so much excitement coming on. Look at the show we had two weeks ago. It was yeah. unbelievable. Unbelievable. Unbelievable, yeah. right? And and we've just been in flux with, like, so many great shows this year. It's 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 just amazing. It's, ama- it's so cool to have a first-class seat on this UFC rocket ship that is just yeah. 
And still going up. And you've you've you know you've been in there to watch mixed martial arts really evolve as a sport as well, haven't you? Since the early days, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's nobody been around in the UFC. This sounds like I'm blowing my horn. I don't mean to, but I don't think anybody's been in the UFC longer than me. Yeah, it'll be 28 years next February. Wow. Wow. Yeah. The UFC's merged with WWE. The UFC what? The the UFC is merged with the WWE. Emerged, yeah, yeah. Will we ever see a crossover where we see Bruce on WrestleMania? I would love to do a one-off. Yeah. And uh, Logan Paul is a friend of mine. Yeah. He would love for me to announce one of his events. Yeah. But it's so funny to me, um, and with all respect, Vince, uh, one of his announcers was mentioning to him about me, and Vince went public and said, uh, that I'm too over the top for the WWE. Are you kidding me? Really, Vince? Really? <laughs> Maybe it's because you used Let's Get Ready to Rumble a couple of times when you shouldn't have, and I had to notify you about it. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> business is business. But really, Vince? No. That's that's mental. I think it'd be fantastic to see I would you do take like bumps. a one-off I would get into it. I would do a whole thing. Are you you'd kidding? You'd be fantastic. Yeah. Oh, you could throw a few blows in there as well. That would be, you'd be amazing. I'm totally game. It would be. <laughs> yeah, totally. I, I mean, I haven't watched WWE stuff for quite a while. I was a huge fan of it uh, back in the kind of Attitude Era days when I was in my teens. And it's stuff. great entertainment, but believe it me. is good great entertainment. entertainment. And, I, and I've seen some of those clips of like Logan Paul and the, the, that crazy clothesline, clothesline thing off the amazing. top. Right? Amazing, amazing athlete. But yeah, I, w- I would be more inclined to tune in if you were announcing than <laughs> I than I would if if not for sure. Um, the one thing. I'm always interested to know is these little kind of private conversations that are, are happening between fighters and Dana or fighters and someone in the octagon after it's happened. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things, if, you, if you're okay with, with answering this question, one of the things I'd love to know is we had such a beautiful fairy tale moment with Robbie Lawler recently yeah. where he got that retirement, he won that fight in seconds in yeah. emphatic fashion. Then we got the VT of his greatest moments. But one thing that happens is you went over to him, you gave him a little hug and you had a little word in, in his oh. ear. And I would love to know what was said in that moment because it was a dream moment. As an MMA fan, you don't get many fairy tale MMA retirements. Usually a lot of times like we've seen with, with the likes of, of Frankie Edgar and um, a few other people recently where, you know, these legends who you love, they, they retire by getting knocked out yeah. or they fight someone that, you know, you think was in their yeah. prime way beneath them. But Robbie got the fairy tale and you had a word of him. Would you be, be able to share what you said to him? Sure, I'll be happy to. Um, Robbie and I have been friends for obviously his entire career. He's one of the most humble gentleman to ever sit from the octagon, one of the greatest warriors to ever sit from the octagon. And uh, going back, even when I severed my, the first time I severed one, I severed both ACLs for the UFC, but the first time was in front of 55,000 people at the Rogers Center when Jake Shields fought George St. Pierre, and I severed my ACL announcing George St. Pierre. Jeez. I'm lucky this I don't fall down. famous, right? I don't want you to gloss over that too much. I do want to hear the Robbie thing, but like you, you, you said that, didn't you, were you in the middle of saying one of their names? Was it George St. Pierre? George St. Pierre, yeah. And it happened in the middle of you saying that? Yeah, okay, I'll do this story real quick and then I'll do that. Yeah, sorry, please. I, I know I've thrown you off there, but I, I just want to hear Remember it. Remember I told you I'm a big poker player? Right? Yes, so I'll I was, ask you about that later. <laughs> this is going to sound funky as hell, but I was at a poker tournament the week before and um, I, it was a break in the tournament. I got up to take a walk. I hit a dip in the carpet in the casino and I rolled my ankle, oh. right? And it hurt. And then I woke up the next morning when I made the second day to go back and play the final table and my whole ankle was engorged with blood. I couldn't even stand on it. 
Had to go to the hospital, get all this blood drawn out of the ankle. They gave me a set of crutches, went to the tournament, took third, won like $30,000, went home. But I can't walk. And I'm, I'm like worried because the next Saturday is the biggest UFC in the history of the UFC. 55,000 people sold out in less than like 20 minutes, right, in Canada. So I'm, I've got the crutches. I'm doing everything I can. Finally, on Thursday, I'm able to stand and walk. So I get on the plane. I go to Canada. I get there. I do the show. Adrenaline is pumping. I jump. I turn. I do everything, not even considering what's going on with my uh, my ankle. And then when I went into George's corner, um, I'm like, George, rush. And as soon as I say that, as normal, George lunges out. As normal, I bunny hop back about a foot and a half or so. And when I bunny hop back, I landed on the bang, bad ankle. It wobbled, and my knee exploded. Severed my entire, just gone. And so it was like a, a force of pain. George, rush, say, B! <laughs> I got it. Whoa. And I walk over to, I walk over, I put my hand underneath the, I think it was Herb Dean, the, the referee. You know, I got my face on and inside I'm going, holy shit, I just blew my knee. Right? I get out of the you see me hop out of the octagon yeah. on one leg. And uh, big John McCarthy goes up, I think you just blew your ACL. And Stitch Duran gives me a bag of ice, rolls up my pant leg, and I got ice on my knee. I'm watching two great warriors go at it, and the announcer's got an ice bag on his knee. What's wrong with this picture, okay? So anyway, yeah, I blew the knee. So there you go. All right, Robbie Lawler. Uh, oh, and Ro- and after that, Robbie, to show you what a good guy he is, two days later, Robbie Lawler called me to see if I was okay. Oh, my. You know, just out of the blue. Buff, are you okay? Everything good? So we, we have a bond. We have a friendship. So I got tears in my eyes. I had no idea that was his last fight when I announced him. And then finally, somebody told me before I announced him that it was his last fight. So I wanted to give him everything I could give him, right? And then after he won, it was so magnificent with all respect to the fighter that he beat that he won the way that he did. And I went over, gave him a hug, and I basically said, you know, Robbie, I'm going to miss you. It's been an honor to announce you all these years in the octagon, but I will forever be your friend. And that's what I told him. Beautiful. You know, so I'm going to get tears out of my eyes right well, now. I'm an emotional teary, guy. Mate. I'm Italian. It's, really, you know, it's, I, it's I, dusty I in here, guys. It's this hay fever, pollen season. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Um, Bruce, when we speak to fighters, we always sort of ask them about, like, how they control their nerves and, and you know, that making that ring walk and then mm-hmm. getting in the octagon and, 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 and how you handle them nerves. Do, do you get nervous? No. Um, I did get nervous my first few shows, as anybody naturally would. Mm-hmm. Uh I don't get nervous. I get pumped. My adrenaline starts going. I get excited, right? I don't get nervous. Yeah. I, I'm too many years in the business to get yeah, nervous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. But maybe when Mirko Krokop came to the Octagon for the first time, I was a little nervous to walk into his space and announce him. <laughs> <laughs> Never know what's going to happen with Mirko. But, you know, outside of moments like that, no. This, there's just, it's such a pleasure to have this job. Yeah. You know, it's such a privilege I wake up every morning and I, and I wake up with UFC on my chest and Voto, Voice of the Octagon. You know, it's just like, I, how can I not love that? I have to just honor it, love it, and cherish every moment. Well, I have to say, I, I feel like I get quite envious of you when you're up there. You're getting flown all around the world. You're, you're doing this amazing job. You've got front row seats yeah. to these incredible sporting events. One thing I wouldn't be jealous of, though, is a certain story that I'd love to hear about your... Another one? I would (laughs) love another one, mate. I mean, look, we've got time here, but uh, if you need to go, by all means do. uh, It's time for another story. Here we go. (laughs) 
Well, I, I, you've probably wait, wait, told wait. Let me. I, I just want to make sure I'm getting a little hot here. Oh, so can I have one of those as well? Yeah, I just yeah. No, no, no. Take your stomach freshen up a bit. Oh, you've got gifts for us. Look at this. No, I come prepared. Oh, we've got special. Look at that. Special. Do you know the cologne is the is in the top five seller on Amazon in the UK and number one in America? I did not know that, but I'm glad to know about it. Thank you so much. You're very, that is, very well. that is really lovely of you. Thank you very Cheers. much. Cheers. But um, the uh, and it's a good job we've got that because uh, it makes me sweat just thinking about this story. It was yourself, I believe Dana White was there, and the UFC legend by the name of Frank Trigg in an elevator. Now you knew this story was coming. Surely <laughs> it, it creeps up on me once in a while. Yeah, it's pretty. I mean, it's quite amazing because for for the younger <laughs> UFC fans that won't know about your your kickboxing and the tang sudo and the judo and all that stuff that you've done and all that they just see bruce buffer this you know very well-dressed man in in the octagon doing its time everyone loves it they wouldn't expect you to get into a a physical altercation with a ufc fighter but you have done this in the elevator with frank trigg could you talk us through what happened yeah i've had a number of experiences with fighters over the years Um, (laughs) chuck liddell and the china white you know, brawl in the streets and all that. I was, I've, I've, I've had a lot of number of experiences, but in this experience you're talking about, um, we were doing uh, the Tough Show in Vegas. We we're at the Hard Rock Hotel, and we had two shows. We were staying there for a week. We had two shows to do, and uh, it was after the first show. And I was up in uh, Mike Goldberg's room, and um, Dana White and the UFC did an animated show on it, on UFC Folklore. Fight Law, yes. Uh, Fight Law, Fight Law. Yes, I loved it. Which Dana called me up after. He goes, Buff, Buff, it's the best thing we ever did. He goes, I go, what'd you do? And we talked about the fight. I go, really, Dana, you did? <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> he goes, yeah, it's the best. Wait till you see it. Wait till you see it. So, um, anyhow, who? Uh, we were up in Mike Goldberg's room. We had a drink. And then we were going to go out, right? So we walked to the elevators on the 10th floor of the Hard Rock Hotel and... Uh, I recapped this with Frank Trigg on his podcast like about six months later, and I wrote about it in my book, uh, It's Time, which I had released here in England too. And when I wrote about it in my book, I wrote it exactly the way that Trigg and I talked about it on the show because I wanted to make sure I did it right, okay? So we walked in the elevator, and Frank had it was not in the UFC anymore, and he immediately talked to Dana about, hey, put me back in the octagon in so many words. So you walk in, Dana and the security guard, Tom, are here, Trig and Goldberg are here, and I'm last to walk in, and the doors are still open. And I'm a watch freak, and Dana had on this very, very cool watch band. So as Frank is mentioning what he's mentioning, I leaned over. I go, Dana, that's really a cool watch band. And I just stand up like this, and Frank's behind me, and all of a sudden, I get a ridge hand on my throat, right? And a little, little more than that. And, um, I mean, it, I felt it, and I turned around. And, Frank, you hit me. I said, why the fuck did you hit me? Right? I rarely say that word, but this is the time I gotta say it. I think it's fair. <laughs> and and he looked at me and he just he just looked at me and he said, well, What are you gonna do about it? Mm-mm. That just the street kicked in. And then just I just threw two punches and then it was on. When you say it was on, I mean Well the doors started to close and we we had a fun tete a tete for ten floors. <laughs> Back and forth <laughs> going up and down. <laughs> you know, Dana's peeled against the, the wall, everybody's peeled against the wall, we're doing our thing and if you know the Hard Rock Hotel, there's all these glass encasements out in the lobby. And the way we were going at it, we were going to spill out the elevator into the lobby. And um, basically at the end, uh, I just threw my hands in the air when I saw the, the doors opening up. And I go, we're done, we're done, we're done. Because I didn't want to make a spectacle out of it, you know. 
my mind's always thinking three steps ahead. Uh, so um, then I'll notice there's blood up and down my shirt. My thumb is peeled back. Which thumb was it? Uh, yeah, this one. You can still see the scars. My thumb is peeled back. I can see the bone in my thumb. I must have hit it on his watch or belt buckle or something like that when, we're, when we were tossing and doing our thing. And, um, you know, we're sorry, this, that, apologizing back and forth, having a laugh. Dana's enjoying it. You know, the whole bit. I mean, it was one of those things, guys. Was, I call it a friendly tete-a-tete. So then I went to the emergency room and uh, hundreds of dollars, you know, seven or so stitches later. Oh, God. That's it. That you is know? a different it was a great. It was a great night, though. I mean, I announced the UFC. I got in a cool tete-a-tete with a top <laughs> MMA fighter in, in the elevator in front of my boss who knows he doesn't have a wimp announcing his fighters in the octagon now. <laughs> and I went out to a nightclub and had some fun and... I'll, I'll do it tomorrow night if I can. I mean, I felt like I was 18 years old all over again. It's all Fantastic. good. All wow. kidding aside, it was just one of those things. I really treated the explanation light. But if you watch that UFC uh, fight, Laura, it, it lays it all out. Yeah, it's brilliant. And Frank, and Frank talks about it too. Yeah. You know? yeah. It's and I'm not trying to sound like a tough guy, but there's just certain rules in life. Don't put your hands on me. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. You know? I mean, it's just be respectful. I wouldn't do that to you. Yeah. Yeah. Imagine waiting for the lift on the tenth floor. It's opens and buffer <laughs> trip just roll out. What would you think about me if I got hit in the neck and I just folded up like you know warm goat cheese? I mean, yeah. am I, is that respectful? No. Yeah. Wow. You don't want to wimp announcing your fighters in the octagon. <laughs> no, well, I mean, yeah, I, I don't think anyone would have even thought about it. But the, the fact that you're there going toe to toe with a UFC fighter, I think anyone that didn't know that story now just sees you in a very different light. As a, again. No wimp announcing these fights are oh, there. Thank you. Fantastic. I just stand up for myself. I'm not trying to be the toughest guy in the world. There's always somebody tougher. That's just life. Yeah. yeah. You mentioned uh, tough uh, when you're talking about um, Trig there. And um, we're in the middle of a, a season of tough at the moment and mm. uh, with, with, with Connor and Chandler. Yeah. And uh, we're, we're always interested to get people in the industry's take on uh, on that potential fight. Do you think it will happen? Well, I do, but I mean, according to all this USADA testing and everything, there's no chance of it happening until the beginning of the year, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I look at, uh, I mean, Connor, I mean, Mike's made great money. Connor's made amazing money. Um, Connor, I think, can't even think about fighting until the beginning of the year, if I'm not incorrect. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if Mike, if Chandler wants to wait that long. I think he'll wait for Connor, won't he? It's such a big battle. Well, it's such money. a big fight, but yeah. it's a long layoff. Mm. So I do not know. I would hope that it will happen, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. as we want it to happen. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I've got quite a serious question for you now in terms of um, because you have seen the sport evolve so much, yet, I mean, I work in the arts industry predominantly and there's still a large section of that industry that still sees mixed martial arts as an overly violent sport filled with thugs and they need educating on the fact, the athleticism, the sacrifices, the the good that so many I'm of these... I'm just smiling parties. because I understand where you're coming from. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, mean, you know, I, I, I do. I, I, I get it a lot being in the industry that I'm, I'm in and um, people need to be educated on... And also the media doesn't always help. You know, we get a lot of the negative stories about a lot of combat sports athletes. Right. We don't hear enough about, say the charity work that Dustin Poirier does or that Molly McCann is um, writing a book about coming out and the proceeds go to Stonewall. Things things like these are these amazing things that fighters do right. uh, for their communities and stuff like that. How would you argue against someone with the mindset of, oh, it's just a sport of, of thugs? And do, do you, in what ways do you feel that MMA actually benefits society? Well, you know, I... Um... 
This happened in the United States. This happened like in Germany and other countries, and it could still happen in a new country, whatever new country there is to go to. Perception is reality in life, okay? And one of the first things whenever I have a, somebody talk to me about that, I, I always ask them one thing. I said, do you like boxing? I always ask, do you like boxing? And usually the answer is yes. Did you know that five or more people a year die from boxing? Mm. Not just from the boxing, but from the training that leads up to the boxing. I don't know if that statistic still sounds true today, but it was the statistic a number of years ago. And I said, do you realize the trauma, the, 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 the head trauma that they go through, right? Well, the UFC has been around for 30 years, and we never had a single death. We've had a number of injuries, you know, mm-hmm. broken bones, torn muscles, broken egos, but we've never had a death. There's been two or three deaths in mixed martial arts since the sport came around, which was, I think, once in Russia and another situation, which was due to the medical or the way that the organizations yeah. were run. So I said, okay, you think about boxing, you think about this. Do you realize the skill that goes into this? These are called mixed martial artists because they have to know every form of fighting there is, legally speaking and otherwise, so that they can adapt and have an answer to every single weapon that's thrown at them with a defensive weapon coming back at the offensive weapon being thrown at them. This is a very highly skilled sport. Next thing I ask is, have you ever watched a UFC? They see answers either yes or no or whatever. Well, if they say no, then it's real simple. How can you possibly form an opinion if you've not watched what you're talking about, right? So I like kind of like to know where they're coming from. But I don't like to make it an argument. I like to treat it more like a conversation so that they can walk away thinking, you know, maybe I do need to take a better look at this yeah. to understand this more. You can't force people to think the way you want them to think, but you can educate them. Yeah. But um, the best way to educate is to watch the sport. Right. And realize how how wonderful and magnificent these men and women warriors, athletes are. I had uh, a friend of mine, Charles Barkley, the basketball player. It took me two years to get him to go to an event. He was kind of scared of it. He thought it was too brutal. Next day he's like, oh, buff, these are the most highly conditioned athletes in the world. Thanks, Charles. Thank you. I've had... uh, girlfriends, you know, or, or like I want to take to a show or even talk to girls about the show. Oh, no, I can't stand fighting, right? By the second uh, bout, they're jumping out of their seats. They're going crazy. <laughs> they're loving it, you know? Watch it. Appreciate yeah. it. And if you watch it and you don't appreciate it, it's not your sport. It's not your thing. Yeah. Right? Fine. Certainly. Um, one thing you've mentioned a couple of times is poker. I play poker every few months with uh, some of my uni mates. I never win, Bruce, and I need help. Is there any very quick tips and tricks for poker? Patience. 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 Take the time to think about your move before you make it. Understand the map, right? Know your range of hands, how many outs you have. Do you know what outs are? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So measure your outs. Make your decision, right? It's okay to fold. Play the player, not the cards. It's uh, Mike Sexton once said, it takes five minutes to learn, but a lifetime to master. Yeah. And it does. I mean, I've won a number of tournaments. <clears throat> I've done very well on the pro circuit. I can't play the amount of tournaments I like to play because of how much I work and I'm on the road. But I played the World Series of Poker main event. Um, and uh, I love winning money at poker. There's no more, the, the most fun money to spend is money you win when you're playing poker or when I'm playing blackjack. It's like, for some reason, the most money to spend. And hopefully save. <laughs> and don't ever bet with money you can't afford to bet. No. Don't play with money you cannot afford to play with. Don't Absolutely. make that mistake. Yes. Whenever I've played with my mates, we kind of do like a 20 quid in and that's it. There's no cash games. It's just, you know, we play 
for the fun of it because you know we would spend more going out for drinks in London than what we would have just yeah. meeting each other for a few hours and, and playing a game of cards. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, that's fine. Yeah. Just have fun. Yeah. Poker's a great game to talk back and forth, to get to know yes. your mates. It's just it's just so much fun. I can play poker for hours and hours and hours. No question. I played the Molly's games. I played all that stuff. Yeah. I played with Toby Maguire. I played with some very... Oh, wow, really? Yeah, all the years. I've had a lot of fun, a lot of very interesting moments playing poker. You did like a UFC versus... Oh, was it like footballers or something? What was the... the poker new... After Dark. It might have been that, yeah. Randy Couture, Danny Henderson. That myself. was it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I got second I, against Harold Lederer that night. Amazing. <laughs> yeah, I won 10,000. He took home 90,000. Jesus. Yeah. Bruce, lastly, I, I just want to ask you this because... You, your life's been incredible. What a journey it's been, you know, and continues to, 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 to be that. Thank you. And, you know, so many weird twists of fate, like, you know, with, with, with your brother and the connections that you've made and the, the, the journey's been so fascinating. It's been a real privilege to, to, to get to talk to you about this. Thank you. Um, Bruce, do you ever stop and look back and take stock of it? Absolutely. You know, when I wrote my book, It's Time, about 10, 11 years ago, whenever it was, I think I forgot more than I rem- remember, right? Yeah. And the beauty of writing the book was that all these memories came back in. And sometimes I'll sit back and I'll think back to all the amazing experiences. You know, even out of the world of fighting, I, money's, money's one thing, okay? I'll, I'll be the first one to cash a check on Monday at the bank, okay? No question. But the experiences, the people you meet, the bonds you make, um, the memories you create, being at, uh, if you know basketball, being when Michael Jordan uh, had the famous flu game, right, yes. against the Utah Jazz. And you see me in, seri- in the 10th episode of the, uh, uh, the dancing series. The Lost Knots, great documentary. The Lost Knots, yeah. right. And I'm behind Michael with, as I got him on the court to announce the game as his manager, and I'm behind him with the camera filming him, right. Well, during that game, I saw Michael Jordan leaning against the wall before the game. He was obviously sick as a dog, Right. And then he, come, he scored six points, and then in the second half, he came out and scored over, like, 40 points to win the game. It was one of the most amazing single-man team-related performances I'd ever seen in my life. To be able to witness that and to be able to be on the court when the confetti's falling and celebrating with everybody, it's just, these are memories you just, you know, you just don't forget. Yeah. You know? Or experiencing the, the, the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat, whether it's in fighting or, or other experiences that I've had. I, I can just, and music and film and TV and all the things that I've been able to do throughout my career with and without my brother and in my own career, it's just, I, I wouldn't change it for the world. You know, it's amazing. It really is. It's so rich and rich is not all about money. Rich is about, you know, experience, like I said, and to meet fine people like yourselves. I mean, that's, this, this is what life's all about, you know? Yeah. To a large extent. Bruce, we've been, we've been going for a, a, a long time and we were just about to wrap this interview up, but did you just say you were Michael I, Jordan's here, manager? I, it's okay, I'm here. Did I just say what? Did you just say you were Michael Jordan's manager? No. No, what did you, you say Michael Jordan on the pitch, uh, on the court? On the court? Yeah. No, to celebrate with Michael. Oh, yeah. why were you oh, celebrating? No, no, I was, no, I was on the court as Michael Buffer's manager. Oh, right. Right. I arranged for when Michael Buffer. Michael's manager. No, and you were talking about, I was no, like, no, 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 no. Michael Jordan's manager as well. No, I, I might have left the UFC if I was Michael Jordan's manager. <laughs> That's like, that can't that, be that right. Money, money might have gotten away on that one. Oh, no, wow. No. That would have been incredible. Well, no, 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 Michael, because I, whenever you see Michael, again, on the man behind the man behind the rumble, if you see Michael on the court, I had to make the deal to put him on the court. If you see him announced for the Las Vegas, uh, you know, Golden Knights, you know, 
somebody's got to make that call and make that thing happen. That's yeah. that's my job. That's what I do. Well, I've looked stupid at the end of that uh, moment. No, you then. didn't. But, uh, yeah. I, I, I mean, you talk about... I was putting another couple of zeros on my bank account <laughs> yeah. thinking I was Michael Jordan. <laughs> man. be great. You talk about experiences and... You know, speaking on behalf of myself and, and, and Blake, this has been an absolutely really oh, wonderful thank so experience. And thank you much. so much for your time, Bruce. It's been thank a, you, an absolute it's joy. Silly. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you so much. And uh, it's time. The Cologne is out now. It's time Cologne is out and it's a big hit. Uh, we just released it in 30 countries around Europe. Um, it's going to be it's United States, Australia, Canada. Uh, it's the number one seller on Amazon in the United States. But the beauty of It's Time Cologne is that it's going to be followed up with a number of things. Body wash, facial wash, moisturizer. Brilliant. Everything, all the toiletries that you can possibly think of. And we're also coming out with the finest energy drink and hydration drink that will be known to man, which is the It's Time Energy and Hydration Drink. So RBM, the company I work with, they're absolutely amazing. And uh, they're based here in London. And we've been at this for two years now. And it's time. It's all coming out. It is time. And it's actually brilliant. We had a little smell of it earlier. It's fantastic. And, yeah, it's been such a pleasure talking to you, Bruce. Thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate it. Just follow me on Instagram, Bruce Buffer UFC, and I'll announce all this stuff. You'll see everything there. One thing I did want to tell you, though, is the UK fans have been ordering a lot of um, the videos I do where I do weddings and birth of babies. On the Cameo? Uh, I'm on Cameo, too. You can go to BruceBuffer.com. But I have such – my partner, Kristen, and I – we get tears in our eyes when we get the thank you notes for the weddings or the birth of babies and stuff. It's we we give partial proceeds to charity, um, and it's a business like anything else. But making people happy is something that makes me very very happy. You know, so I enjoy it. How does a, a baby birthing uh, kind of announcement go? Um, I got one and it went viral when I did it, and suddenly all of a sudden these bir- I did it for a fighter. Right, I know I did uh, Stipe Miocic's baby. He, no. he he posted, and all of a sudden I'm getting all these orders for the birth of babies. I did Michael Bisping's wedding. Suddenly, all these weddings come in. I probably did before I came to England. I did eight weddings this week. Right, wow. I probably do an average of six or more a week. You know, walking down the aisle of love forever, <laughs> presenting. You know, like that. I was in Australia this last trip to Australia, and uh, we were touring a winery. And there was a wedding going on in the uh, field next door, right? And so I saw it, and then somebody saw me, and they said, oh, God, there's such fans of you. They saw you out there. So I went in, and I introduced the bride and groom, you know, into their wedding party. They had no idea. I was casually dressed, and I just showed up and did it. And it just it made me so happy. You know, yeah. it's like to be part of someone's special day. It's, like I told you guys, I'll be the first one to cash a check on a Monday morning at the bank. But that's not what life is all about. It's about experiences and doing good for people and being a good human being, right? And if I can bring that kind of joy to them at the same time experiencing the same or more joy myself, then, hey, it's kismet. Let's do it. What a beautiful way to end this podcast, Bruce. Again, icon. Thank you so much. There you go again. (laughs) Just call me Bruce, okay? It's all good. It's all good. Thank Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it very much. All right. Dinner time? 